Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. If you are reading from the Bibles at the back of the church, this passage begins on page 1073. John, chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Grace family. Children at this time, up through grade three, are dismissed to junior worship. For the rest of us, let's take a moment. Let's prepare our hearts with prayer. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you knowing that many of us in this world, we, we know some, at least, of the troubles of which Christ spoke. We come to you for courage. So Father, do a miracle and work in our hearts in such a way that by your Holy Spirit, we can see Jesus for who he truly is. Father, rend the heavens and come down and open up your word to us so that we can see you and endure. And in enduring, that we would endure joyfully with our eyes fixed on that final prize. Keep us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Welcome, friends. We're working through the Gospel of John. We come now to John chapter 16, and uh, this morning my thoughts were pretty heavy because of the passage that we're looking at, and I was thinking of several people that I knew over the course of my life who at one point or another had the opportunity to say to me, I never thought my life would turn out this way. There's one person in particular, and I, you know, won't say names to protect the, the people, as it were, who had endured surgery after surgery after surgery as a result of a bodily condition that they were never going to be free of in this life. And heart surgery after heart surgery, it just looked at me at one point with this deep sadness and said, I never thought my life was going to be this way. I have another person, you know, who 
child departs the family culture in such a profound way as to make it almost impossible to relate to them, and they're crushed by it. Or another couple that experienced sudden financial collapse. All of a sudden, everything that they had worked for, gone. And they looked and said, I, I, didn't, I didn't think my life was going to turn out this way. Or some other folks that I've had the opportunity to speak to have endured day after day after day after day of work. A work that seems to have no meaning. A work that seems to go nowhere. A work for which they are becoming physically less and less capable of with every passing day, and yet there's nothing else they can do. And they would look at me and say, I never thought my life would turn out this way. Friends, we are all of us going to face trouble. And if we're going to faithfully endure to the end, then we're going to need to find hope. That's why this passage, among many reasons, is really important. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me. We're going to look at John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. This passage is incredibly important because all of us are going to face trials in this life and we need, we need to be ready. The main idea for today's passage and today's sermon is that Christ's victory brings us peace. Christ's victory brings us peace. And we're gonna break this into two parts. First, we're gonna do a very quick workup through the context and then we're going to focus on the last verse and what is in an ever-competing list from my favorite doctrine, <laughs> the doctrine of what it means to be in Christ. So part one, a Christian's life depends entirely on Christ. Part one, a Christian's life depends entirely on Christ. Several points that we can draw out here as you're looking at chapter 16, verses 25 through 33, first Jesus says that he will speak plainly after the resurrection. So verse 25 says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. So verse 25 points forward to when after the resurrection, Jesus will no longer conceal his meaning deliberately by using metaphors. So a good example of this would be in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So whereas before Jesus spoke deliberately in parables to conceal the meaning of the kingdom from the lost, and where he still speaks in parables even to the disciples and has to interpret them later privately, after the resurrection, Jesus will no longer conceal his meaning. And then in verses 26 through 27, Jesus reminds us how significantly the cross affects our relationship to God. This whole section, in some sense, has been about what the cross is going to do in the Christian life. He says, as far as our sins removed us from God's affection and counsel and favor, so far does Christ, in and through his cross, restore us to God that Jesus has so fully delivered us from God's wrath that we do not come timidly. We do not come with trepidation. We don't come with fear. We come boldly before his throne, and we rightly enjoy his mercy and his love. 
And then in verse 28, you get this summary statement. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. This means that Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection has fully accomplished and has fully provided all that is required to save God's church. Now, while we are called to strive and to discipline ourselves in the pursuit of godliness, yet in Christ, it's finished. It's done. We are now and we always will be in the sphere of God's redeeming grace, even when our lives don't seem to turn out the way that we thought. Between verses 29 through 32, we see the disciples then hastily and spuriously, meaning without actual basis for their conviction, conclude that Jesus is in fact speaking plainly now, verse 29, and of course, that they understand him, verse 30. There's lots of reasons why John might have included this. I think John says this to reinforce for us, as do all the Gospels, that Christ's victory on the cross was all of Christ. That it was not a collaborative effort. That none of the disciples in any sense helped Jesus achieve his goal. No, they fell asleep. They resorted to violence. They fled. They assumed they had understanding that they didn't have. And by showing us the disciples' weakness, what John means to do is highlight Christ's perfection. In Christ's perfect obedience, he perfectly provides all that salvation requires with no assistance or contributing effort from anyone else at all. Christ has done it. Christ did do it. That is why this first part is titled, A Christian's Life Depends on Being in Christ. A Christian's life depends entirely on Christ, and therefore, a Christian's life depends on being in Christ. So part two, where we're going to spend the rest of our time, is verse 33. To be in Christ means to share in his peace, his suffering, and his victory. By his cross, Christ brings believers into his peace, enabling them to endure suffering and ultimately uniting them to his victory. Being in Christ is what unites us to Christ's peace. It is also what involves us in worldly suffering. And it ultimately is what brings us into his victory. So let's look at verse 33 and let's examine it. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The peace that Christ promises comes by so trusting in his words and in his work that we could be said to be in him. Similarly, we will have tribulation in this world. 
Now, why is that? Well, we know from John 15, 19, so a little ways back, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So notice how both our peace in Christ and our trouble in the world result from our identity in Christ. And the same then applies to Christ's ultimate victory. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So how do you participate in Christ's peace? How do you share in his tribulation? And how will you encounter his victory? By being in Christ. Peace, trouble, courage, and victory all come because we are in Christ. And that means it is essential for a Christian to know what does it mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ is to so identify with Christ by faith that what is true of Christ becomes true of us. To be in Christ is to so identify with Christ by faith that what is true of Christ becomes true of us. And I tried to think of every conceivable illustration. I'm sure I don't have all of them. Here's a few. Some of us might understand this one. So when we have a court case, for instance, you hear about so-and-so against the state or so-and-so versus the state. Now, we don't mean that the entirety of all the population of the state of Ohio arrives and is bringing suit against this person. What we mean is that some person representing all the power and authority and resources of the Constitution of Ohio is, is in suit against this other person. So the representatives in that case, enjoy the state's power. They benefit from everything that the state has. Another way to think of it is that we benefit from what is true of Christ the way that a finger benefits from what is true of the hand or even the head. That just as it goes with the mind, so also it goes with the hand. When the mind orders, the hand obeys. And if the hand hurts, the mind hurts as well. There's this unity between the two. What is true of the one becomes true of the other. In both blessing and sorrow, a wise mind makes for a wise hand. Or you could think of my favorite, which would be Christ is like a king. As Americans, we don't really like the idea of kings. <laughs> kind of built on that whole thing. You can find this bar in Philadelphia where it says, we serve no king here. Oh, but friends, if you, I've sometimes thought about putting it over the lintel of my house. We serve a king here. And what is it about a king? Everything that the king has, that if you are his subject, you share in it. When he goes to battle, you go to battle. If he suffers defeat, you suffer defeat. If he gains territory, you gain territory. If he amasses riches, you amass riches. Because your fate and the king's fate are inextricably linked. You are his. You are his. You are the body of his mind, as it were. And friends, Christ is like that. And to be one with Christ, to be in Christ, is to have Christ as your king. 
We can see this worked out in a number of ways. So like Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And what kind of children? And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are royal blood, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or in 1 Peter 4.13, he will say, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Not just that you benefit from them, that you share in them. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Or in Philippians 3, 8 through 11, Paul concludes, this is like his final conclusion about his life. He says, for his sake, that is for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. To follow Christ is to share in all of Christ. His peace and his suffering, and by consequence, his victory. So while this doctrine extends far beyond these few points, here are three amazing effects of our union in Christ. First, Christ is our peace. Because we are in Christ, we have peace. Look at verse 33. It says, I have said these things to you, what we've been studying for the last several weeks, that in me you may have peace. Now, what is this peace? In short, peace in Christ is contentment in Christ. It is what directs and what rules our affections in such a way that we are not overcome by the troubles of this world. Now, clearly, the peace that we have in Christ is not bodily ease. It can't be defined as worldly comfort since he says, in this world, you will have trouble and presently will define trouble. It includes ordinary troubles like what you and I experience. So it can't mean that because we have the peace in Christ, we won't experience bodily discomfort. Peace might mean freedom from overwhelming anxiety, like a crushing sense of fear about the future. But it doesn't mean freedom from pain. It doesn't mean freedom from loss. And it doesn't mean freedom from sorrow. To be at peace then means that we are not at conflict with God's purpose or grace in our life. To be at peace means to be spiritually content in Christ. So some illustrations. In one sense then, peace is like ballast in a boat, or it's like a solid foundation. Ballast in a boat is there so that when the wave comes and hits the boat, the boat has enough mass that it won't be overturned. It will remain stable. Or like a solid foundation, like what Jesus speaks about in Matthew 7, the wise man built his house on the rock. (laughs) He built his house on the rock. Why? So that when the storms and the rain and all those things beat against 
that house. It did not come down because it was built on the rock. Anyone would be sorrowful to lose their life savings in a moment. Anyone. Anyone would be sorrowful to lose all their money in the collapse of an economy or because they were suddenly struck with a hard illness. But worldly people, because they are not in Christ, have nothing else. They will throw themselves off a building. They will bury themselves in a bottle. They will drown themselves in self-pity. Because what else is there? And while a Christian certainly feels loss, their life, like the ship with ballast in it, is not capsized. It doesn't mean that Christian ships sh sail through the ocean and never strike a wave. It means that when the waves strike them, it does not destroy the ship. Indeed, instead, they find new opportunities for joy in Christ. Listening, as some of you know, to uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the biography of Jonathan Edwards, and he just came to the part where Esther Edwards, one of his beloved children, lost her precious husband, who had just become the uh, president of, of Princeton. She didn't expect it at all. He was 41 years old, and he suddenly died. She writes home, this is Esther, she says, through this tragedy, God has shown himself to be an all-sufficient God, a full fountain of all good. I have been able to cast my cares upon him and have found great peace and calmness in my mind, such as this world can neither give nor take away. God is helping me to see the vanity and the uncertainty of everything in this world, heaven and eternal things appear more real and more important than ever before. And the way of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ has appeared more clear and excellent. And I have been moved to venture all upon him. And I have found great peace of soul in trusting him. In short, when all we have is Christ, we find Christ is all we need. To be at peace in Christ is to be undisturbed. It also means to be undisturbed by the world's efforts to shake us free from that contentment and security in Christ. You see, the world works constantly to promote a lifestyle that is in opposition to God. If the world wants you to buy a product, if the world wants you to behave a certain way, if the world wants you to think after a certain manner, it will exhaust itself to disturb you until you turn to it for relief. It will say to you, your car is out of date, your career is untenable, your partner no longer satisfactory. And it will say it again and again and again and again and again to wear you down till it can divest you of your satisfaction in Christ to cause you to turn to the world for rest, for peace. Now, this is not to say there's never a time to buy something or there's never a time to change a job, but to be at peace in Christ is to make Christ and nothing else our ultimate reality. That whatever we do or own in this life, while it is meaningful, it is not our identity. Even the identities that we try and forge for ourselves, especially in this recent age, 
do not and cannot ultimately define or truly satisfy us. And the world will tell you right now more than ever, it seems, you can change your body, you can change your preferences, you can change your practices. One of these things is going to satisfy you, and it's a lie. What we do or own in this life, while it is meaningful, is not our identity. Contentment is a spiritual state that transcends earthly circumstances. That's why Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's talking about the church providing for him. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How? I can do all these things in him who strengthens me. To be at peace in Christ is to be ultimately satisfied by Christ. So a Christian's peace goes hand in hand with joy, patience, and self-control. Because to be at peace means that we find our deepest delight in Christ. Therefore, we are willing, or we could say content, to wait for him to fulfill his promises. And this contentment is the root of our self-control. Contentment is how we subordinate other desires to serve what we know and believe to be the better one, the greater goal to enjoy Christ. So how do we come by this peace? Well, there's lots of ways. Here, it's by reminding our hearts of God's truth. It's by treasuring his word in our soul. Notice that he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Our peace flows from our confidence in what Jesus says. If we suffer loss, then we remember, for instance, Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, or by fixing our eyes on the promise of his coming kingdom. I'll probably butcher the paraphrase here, but where Peter, in hearing Christ say, you're going to lose everything if you follow me, he, he confesses, he says, we have given up everything to follow you. What then will we have? And Christ says, I tell you, anyone who has left lands or family for my sake and for the gospels will receive a hundredfold in the kingdom to come. I say that to myself a lot, to remind myself of the word of Christ, to trust in the word of Christ so that I might be content in Christ so that the difficulties of this world, though they batter hard against my boat, don't capsize it. The fuller your treasury of God's word in your soul, the richer your peace in Christ will be. And it is this peace that we have in Christ by which we endure tribulation. So the second point is, the world hates Christ. Because we are in Christ, in the world we will have tribulation. Because we are in Christ, in the world we will have tribulation. Look at the second part of verse 33. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. I don't know how it seems one of the largest and fastest expanding attempts at a branch of Christianity seems to 
act as though Jesus did not say this. The word tribulation, rendered in the NIV as trouble, which honestly isn't a bad translation, reflects a broad range of painful experiences. The word is flipsis. It refers to a state of anguish or oppression such as in a famine. So when Stephen is recounting what all happened to the children of Israel, he mentions that they were in a famine in Acts 7, flipsis. But more commonly, it refers to targeted acts of persecution. So Jesus, when he's speaking in parable, in Matthew 13, 21, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who endures for a while, and when tribulation, flipsis, or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now friends, our Christian faith does not spare us ordinary difficulties. If the economy collapses, Christians are like to suffer along with unbelievers. In war, Christians are likely to die right alongside the lost. Some of us may have been taught wrongly to apply God's specific covenant with the nation of Israel to present-day nations or even to the church. And we wrongly conclude that because God preserved Israel while visiting wrath on Egypt, that we will somehow, because we are Christian, escape the suffering that is common to our neighbors. Or we regard how he promised to reward Israel's obedience with material prosperity, and we conclude that the same must therefore apply to us. But the covenant between God and Israel has been eclipsed. It was rendered obsolete by the work of Christ on the cross. If anything, to follow Christ means we will face greater difficulty than our neighbors, not less. Acts 14, 22, as Paul goes back to each and every church, and he, sa- he encourages them. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, he writes to his adopted son, and he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In essence, you could think of it this way, that God is opposing Satan's argument concerning Job in contentment and in the life of the church. Remember how Satan came before the Lord and he says, why does Job love you? Is it not because you have blessed him? You've given him lands and family and property. Of course he likes you. Strike him and he will surely curse you to your face. And it seems as though in some sense the church has been brought into the same paradigmatic example. God means to show the world that though we lose our liberty, our life, our rights, our riches, our privileges, though we must sacrifice everything, yet we are more content in Christ. We will not curse him to his face. Though he slay us, yet will we praise him. This is what makes Christian peace and contentment stand out from the psychological peace that is offered by the world. Despite having less worldly comfort, we are more at ease than our neighbors. Not because we are more comfortable, but because we are in Christ. 
So friends, the gospel of Jesus is fundamentally at odds with the gospel of this world. They are like oil and water. They cannot mix. That is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And for some of us, our lack of Christian peace and contentment is actually a reflection of our divided loyalty. That we are still trying to find satisfaction by some worldly means. But Christ assures his disciples that in him, they will have a peace that passes understanding. And in him and because of him and his gospel, so long as they are in this world, they will have trouble. So that yields us two clear conclusions. Tribulation, to one degree or another, is inevitable. Tribulation, to one degree or another, is inevitable, and therefore, we should not be surprised. Jesus says, in this world, you will have, not you might have, not you could have, you will have tribulation. Jesus says this for our courage. He says this for our comfort. I had a physician who uh, was also a friend of mine, and so he, he liked causing me pain. It was kind of this odd relationship that we had. Um, and so he would never warn me about what he was about to do. He would just do it because um, he thought it was amusing. But most physicians, when they're nice, will tell you before they go to do something, right? They say, I'm gonna, I'm, you're going to feel a prick or you're going to feel a, you know, some gentle pressure, which always results in something not gentle and more than pressure. But um, you know, gentle pressure or something like that. But they tell you this to at least take away one of the stings of the pain, which is surprise. Well, you're not surprised. Here it's coming. See, I'm going to do the thing. It's about to happen. Jesus does the same thing. He tells us this so that we're not surprised. 1 Peter 4.12, he's instructing the church. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And not all of us are going to experience or face the same kind of suffering. Not all of us will experience suffering to the same length. Not all of us will experience suffering to the same degree. But all of us will face some kind of tribulation. So this is for our courage, but it's also for our comfort. Friend, if God is not surprised then we may trust that God allows and he appoints to each one of us our circumstances to bring about our good and to bring about his eternal glory. So the second conviction that helps us is that tribulation, while it's inevitable, tribulation is temporary. Therefore, and by God's help, we can endure it. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Well, friends, the good news is that pain, just like a shot, is temporary. Psalmist says, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God will not allow this world's suffering to continue indefinitely. For some of us, the kinds of difficulty that God appoints for us to endure seem almost interminable. But God calls us to lift the eyes of our soul above the horizon of this world 
and fix them on the next kingdom. Of all the passages to memorize, you, I hope you memorize this one. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Again, while there's always a fight inside of me as to what my favorite Bible verse is, it probably usually ends up at, Behold, I make all things new. The way we endure tribulation is by looking to the next kingdom. The way we endure whatever tribulation God appoints in our lives is specifically by fixing our hope on the glorious, ultimate, and certain victory of Jesus Christ. Brings us to our third point. Christ has overcome the world because we are in Christ we will share in his victory. Look at the last part of verse 33. It says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This means that Christ is victorious. In his cross, he has defeated the world. He has defeated everything and everyone that is living in rebellion against God. It means that he has defeated the devil. It means that he has defeated sin. It means that he has defeated death itself. Now recall that the Bible speaks and we do exist along a tension between two points. We call them already and not yet. There are some ways in which Christ's victory is already felt, already present, already realized. But there are some ways in which his victory is yet to be revealed, yet to be consummated. Our salvation is very real, but we are waiting for it to be fully realized so also with Christ's victory. Christ's victory is real. Oh, friend, you may not always believe it, but you can see it reflected all around you. Just take a moment, because right now is the living proof of the victory of Jesus Christ. Despite countless generations of endemic and near-constant persecution, the church of Jesus Christ remains. Amen. <laughs> So you can look around you and you can see that his victory is real. It doesn't just remain, brothers, it grows. Despite everything arrayed against us and despite the weakness of our sinful nature, yet day by day, believers are becoming more like Jesus Christ. Surely you have at least one Christian friend that you've known long enough that you can look at and say, I have seen the Lord change them. Bit by bit, they are not like what they once were. That is proof of the victory of Jesus Christ. Christ has already won. Oh, friend, when you gather for worship, you hear the echoes of Christ's victory procession. When you gather for communion, you taste the first course of his wedding feast. So just consider one way that we can taste Christ's victory. That Christ, by dying on the cross, severed the root of our sinful nature. He is causing it actively, moment by moment, to weaken, to wither, and it will ultimately die. The old Anglican saying holds true, wherein I confess, I have been saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power, and I will be saved from sin's presence. And we can trace that victory through our lives. 
1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57 tells you about Christ's victory. It says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans 6, then, Paul shows us how the spiritual union between us and Christ through faith has real and immediate effects. In verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Every time you taste that just that inch of a change in your heart that moves you closer to Christ. That is the victory of Christ already being worked out in your soul. That is why he says in Galatians 6, 14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is Paul's way of saying, take heart. Christ has overcome the world. So that yields another question. What does it mean for a believer to overcome? Thankfully, John gives us a definition in his first letter in 1 John 5, 4 through 5. It says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If we were to look across Scripture, we would see again and again that someone who overcomes is not someone with a generally positive outlook. It's not necessarily someone who even escapes sickness through faith. It's not someone whose circumstances always turn out. Rather, a Christian embodies and one day shares in Christ's victory by enduring faithfully to the end by fixing his faith and hope repeatedly and unswervingly on the presently invisible but certain reality of Christ's return and coming kingdom. A Christian endures, remains peacefully content, overcomes by resting in Christ's finished work on the cross and gazing with longing and hope on the promise of his return. Dude, Two illustrations to close this out. One, because I'm me from Lord of the Rings, and the other one, because we should all listen to Scripture. <laughs> In one of the last battles of Lord of the Rings, um, Pippin, a little hobbit, and Gandalf, a great wizard, are besieged behind the last door within the great and last fortress of men. And Pippin sits there as the door is being battered, and he leans to Gandalf and he says, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf says, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. Then you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? White shores. And far beyond a far green country, under a swift sunrise, 
Pippin says. Well, that isn't so bad. Gandalf says, no. No, it isn't. An overcoming Christian is a Christian who so identifies with Christ by faith that what is true of Christ becomes true of him. Friends, take courage by fixing your faith and resting your soul on the glorious picture of Jesus Christ's victorious return. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. It doesn't always feel light. It doesn't always feel momentary. But this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This passage is essential to faithful living because every one of us is going to face trials in this life and we need to be ready. But this passage is beautiful because Christ has given us all that we need in order to endure faithfully to his victorious return because Christ's victory brings us peace. Take courage, my friends. Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, has already, and he one day will finally, overcome the world and bring us to himself. Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy on the preaching of your word. And God, work so effectively by your spirit in and through your word that you could give us in our hearts in our heart's eyes, a picture of something that we have never seen. A picture of the glorious victory of Jesus Christ. A picture of his return. Oh Lord, we would be fools for Christ. We would set all that we have on that final hope. Stir up our hearts to trust and rest in that great victory by looking back to the cross and by looking forward to his return. Satisfy us in yourselves, and we ask it for Jesus' sake.